Let's turn to Mark chapter 16. 67 sermons beginning in June of 2017. Remember that? We didn't even know each other, a bunch of us at that point. And so uh, it has taken a while and we finally get to the end, uh, sort of. Um, Mark has a weird ending. And so uh, that's, that's, that's on the agenda today. So this will be different. Some of you are going to love the difference in this like sermon uh, compared to others. And some of you are going to hate it. And uh, if you hate it, I'll say, come back, just come back next week. It'll be different. Uh, if you love it, then go to seminary because there's a lot of this kind of stuff in seminary. So Mark 16, let's start in verse 5 to kind of catch up a little bit. Uh, so you have Holy Week, Thursday night, Gethsemane. Then he's Jesus is betrayed. He's arrested, tried on Friday, uh, crucified. He dies. They bury him Friday at sundown. Then the Sabbath comes and they just have to wait and mourn. Sunday morning, the men are nowhere to be found. The women, super faithful, uh, go to the tomb to complete the burial process. This picks up in verse 5. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, but he is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Okay. Then, in your Bible, to some extent, depending on what your translation, you should have something in brackets or something like that that says something like, like this, what's on the screen. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. In other words, verse 8 is the end of Mark. That's the official ending of Mark. Yet, there are uh, 11 more verses there, right? Like, how do we, what do we, what does that mean? What does it mean they don't include them? What do we do with the stuff that's in the brackets? Okay, uh, this is a very, like, my attempt at a brief overview of a possible explanation for how we got to this point, okay? Uh, I'm going to try to do in a few minutes what um, what some like seminary courses will take weeks to explain. I'm going to give you the free, short version of it. So, if, you, if let's pretend it's the 50s, uh, not not those the actual 50s. Like Jesus, Jesus was 33 in 33. This is like 50. Um, and sometime in 50 or 60, Mark sat down with Peter and was like, "Okay, Peter, uh, I want to." I want to take your memoirs, basically, all the things about Jesus uh, that you learned. I want to put them down on paper, uh, but theirs was a more like a parchment, papyrus type thing. 1,500 years later, printing press comes along, and duplication of these things was really, really easy. But, but back then in the 50s or 60s, we're not sure when it was exactly. Um, if, you were, if you wanted, if you were like, man, this is a fantastic gospel, can I have a copy? Then you would hire a scribe who would copy it by hand, would sit there next to the original and like write, write it out word for word for word, all by hand. Uh, that's the only, was the only way to get a copy of something. 
And so, so you have two, you have, when it comes to these ancient documents, you have two categories. You have the original, which is, which they call an autograph. Then you have the copies, which are manuscripts. So when it says in your Bible, the oldest manuscripts don't have verses nine through 20, it's not talking about the original. It's talking about all the copies that we have don't have that part. Um, mainly because parchment was biodegradable and it would break down over time. And so uh, what that means is that we don't have any autographs of the Bible. Like we have no original mark in his own handwriting type autographs. All we have are manuscripts. All we have are handwritten copies. And so if, you were to, if we were to take, let's say that we had all the, all the mark manuscripts, all the copies, and we were to lay them, lay them out on a long stretch of tables, and we were to say, let's, let's do them in chronological order, from the, the oldest ones that we have all the way through the ages. What we would find is uh, that the oldest ones don't have anything past verse 8. And so you're tracking along the timeline. You're like, man, it stops at 8, stops at 8, stops at 8. And then around the middle of the second century, suddenly these other, like this, this ending shows up. And in fact, if you were to look at all the manuscripts, there's really four different endings that surface over the course of all the manuscripts. With what you and I have in our Bibles as 9 through 20 is by far the most common. The others are, are pretty sparse. Um, but that starts to show up. And so uh, that means it has been a part of the majority of the history of the church, but it... It wouldn't be in the oldest copies that we have. So, a couple of things to, to consider: the older the the older the manuscript, the more reliable it is, because you're closer to the original draft, right? You remember, like it, growing up and stuff, where, where like you would you play the game where like there's like a circle of people and, and you'd whisper like a sentence to someone and you have to keep whispering it, and passing it around, and see how like messed up it was by the end. Uh, so the closer you were to the person who said the first sentence, the, the closer you were to actually getting it right. So if we were to follow that timeline, the, the closer you are to actually mark writing it, the more, the more you can trust it. And it just so happens that if you were to lay out all those manuscripts and you were to say, which of these is in the best shape and which is the most like, like re- still readable, it's also the oldest ones. For some reason, those old, they just don't make them like that anymore kind of thing. Like the oldest ones are in the best shape. They're the most readable and they stop at verse eight. If you read any of the early church fathers, uh, like, uh, Clement of Alexandria, for example, everybody knows, uh, Clemmy is what I call him. Um, they only quote up to verse eight. Nothing, nothing past that. Uh, the early church historians like Eusebius and Jerome, they uh, they were not advocates of those other verses being in there. They stopped at eight. Uh, if you were to read, if you were to read nine through twenty, which we'll do in just a minute, even the style and some of the points that are made don't even they don't really line up with the rest of what we know to be Mark. And so the overwhelming consensus among scholars to the point where I read several times they would say, I don't know a single credible scholar who thinks that anything past eight in your Bible, is original with Mark. Um, so it seems to point to the fact that verse 8 is the last verse. Um, so what do, we do? what do we do with that? What do we do with the fact that 
it ends, it's kind of open-ended, right? Like the women heard from the angel, and they're like, they left like scared, astonished, you know? Like they were like, what, just very uncertain of things, and that's it? Uh, what do we do with the fact that there's 9 through 20 that's there? Um, and the, even the stuff that it says, like, seems pretty right, you know? Like what are we, what are we supposed to do with it? Well, the most likely explanation um, for where these other verses came from is the same thing that we kind of feel whenever we read the end of it. Like you're like, I don't, I don't know that I would have ended the gospel there. Like they haven't even seen Jesus yet. Like isn't the whole point to like not just hear that he's alive, but to see that he's alive? Like isn't that where the validity of everything comes in? Um, that these scribes, as they're as they're like cop making all these copies by hand over time, um, we're thinking the same thing of like that. That can't be the end. Matthew ends this way. Luke ends this way. We we kind of know the sequence of events. Let's just plug in the things that we know happened to kind of make a more satisfactory ending. Um, and and you know how like we're all about that with stories, right? Like we all know. Um, I was looking up. Uh, Something because I was like, this will be a fun like sermon sermon thing of like, hey, here the here to rank the ten best and worst TV show series endings, and then I found out that no one agrees on that stuff either. Like some people are like, well, some people will take the end of the show Lost and they think it's brilliant, and other people just think that those people have lost their minds completely. You know, uh, like every list had people had the same shows, but on the best list on this one, but on the worst list on this other one, and. We we want we need the story to have a satisfactory ending, right? We've invested a lot in this, uh, so it seems as though the scribes just kind of piece that together. The thing is about those verses; none of them are contrary to anything that we see in the New Testament. So nine through twenty may not have been original to Mark, but even what they're saying kind of kind of does wrap up the story in a way that we know the story to end, right? Like, like let's let's look at these verses. Um, so we know that Jesus uh, first appeared to Mary Magdalene, which is what we see in ver- starting in verse 9. When he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. When they heard that he was alive and had seen, been seen by her, they would not believe it. So we know that that happened from the other Gospels. So that's not contrary. Uh, then we know that Jesus appeared to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. So look at verse 12. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. They went back and told the rest, but they didn't believe him. Um, then it moves to the Great Commission, which we are familiar with. Verse 14. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they did not believe those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whomever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. Right. So all those things we know from the other gospel accounts happened. Now the next verse is admittedly a little weird. Look at 18. It says, they'll cast out demons, speak in new tongues. They'll pick up serpents with their hands. Some of y'all are like, nope, I'm out. If they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. 
They'll lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So you're like, okay, demons, speaking in tongues, healing people, but snakes? That seems to be like, a, like, hang on, that's not in the Bible. But actually it is, it's just in Acts 28, it happened to Paul. And so they think that that's what these scribes are referencing in these like miraculous things. Remember, this is well, this is years and years later on that they're adding this in. This is middle of the second century. And so they're thinking, what are the, what are the miraculous signs? And they probably just lump that one in there. Um, but it is in the Bible. Uh, it, now Paul's not saying everyone should do this in the Bible. That's a little, that's a little messed up. Um, we know that Jesus ascended. Look at verse 19. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven, sat down at the right hand of God. They went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Okay? So all of those things, even the snake thing is not an instruction, uh, but it is in the Bible. But, but it's all, it's like these scribes, they were kind of piecing together things to try to build an ending on the, based on what they knew happened. So that's where the verses came from. That's why they say what they do uh, as best as best as any of the smart people can tell. So what do we do with what do we do with the fact that it's there? Well, we we have to do exactly what the Bible translators have asked us to do, right? They put it in brackets. They are they are very upfront. This is not in the oldest manuscripts. This is not original to Mark. There's there's debate, and some translations don't even put those verses in there at all because of this. Um, so we, so we treat it as such. We say, this is not original to Mark. This was added later on. Uh, all these things are they're good biblical ideas, but we go elsewhere to have them confirmed. This is not something from Scripture that we should grab onto. But from the middle of the second century, this has been like a part of what the church studied. So this is a part of our heritage in there. So as a Bible translator, you're trying to figure out how do we, what do we do here? Well, we fully disclose this is not original to Mark, yet it's been a big part of, of the, of the church, uh, from a long, long time ago. And so let's just be honest as we teach with it. We have to be very careful. See, there are, there are folks out there on this Sunday morning who are passing snakes around their sanctuaries. Because they are following a Bible translation that does not set this apart in brackets. The King James does not, does not add that distinction. And if you like the King James, that's, that, I understand that that's a preferential thing for a lot of people. But the King James translation team d- did not set this apart. So there are people who don't, who don't understand this should not be treated as the same as the rest of the market. So they're passing copperheads around the church. That's why we have to be careful. And that's why we have to, to really be students of the scriptures because there's a lot riding on it. And that's a lot of what I, I came away with from this is like, does the, does the ending of Mark and this, this whole subject, does this make me feel better about the reliability of the Bible or does this make me feel skeptical about the reliability of the Bible? And like, like a lot of folks, I sat in, uh, at LSU in religious studies classes and heard professors whose mission was to try to disprove the Bible and prove to every Christian sitting in the room that they were completely foolish to put all their faith in this old book. Um, 
The truth is, you don't put your faith in the old book, you put your faith in Jesus, right? But the book is where we learn about him from, so it's pretty, pretty important. And I remember sitting there as a 20, 21-year-old and having this, this person pass himself off as an expert, try to mess with me. Um, and then I got to seminary and I realized that there are experts upon experts upon experts, and these high-level experts, like global best best in the in the profession, are sitting around with groups of other people who are like that, working on these translations, so that we're not sitting around passing around snakes in the sanctuary, you know, so that we can feel good about what we hold in our hands as the Word of God. And so let me just just for a second tell you why I walk away from this feeling better about the scriptures. And not more skeptical about the scriptures. Um, part of it is the full disclosure of these translation teams. Like I have a ton of respect for the fact that they were that they find a way to do this and make these footnotes, and they're just super upfront about things. Um, in fact, as I've been studying this a little more more deeply, um, you take all the manuscripts that we have, which I'll talk more about that in a second. Um, they, they've said this, the number is 99%. They say 99% of the manuscripts that we have are like, there are, there are no questions. Like there are no issues. 1% of what we have, you come across various things that you're like, ah, I'm not sure what to do with this. The most of those are like different spellings of like, of people's names or like cities and those kinds of things, or it could be a grammar thing here, or this, uh, it's really hard to read that what the last letter of this word is. It doesn't change the word, but it's just, uh, you know, just those kinds of little things. And in fact, there are, uh, within that 1%, there's really only five parts of the scriptures that, that give any sort of like, uh, like, let me scratch my head as an interpreter. And they're all no, like, Notated super well in the ESV and the NIV, like in all these modern translations, not the King James, but a lot of the more modern ones. Um, they're just very quick to do that. And in that 1%, all those differences, there are none of them that put any sort of doctrine at risk. They don't change anything about like our theology and what we believe and all that kind of stuff. And none of that would throw a wrench in there at all. Now, when I say, like, let's lay out all the manuscripts, I think it's hard for us as modern people to really understand uh, what what that's like, like, unless this is your field of study. When you're talking about really, really old documents, most of them have not survived. Um, there are a couple of examples of, like, these, like, really ancient manuscripts that we have uh, that are out there. So... Um, Julius Caesar, he wrote Gaelic Wars in like 3850 BC, and there are 10 manuscripts that are from the 9th or 10th century that, that are still around. Um, 10 manuscripts there. Uh, Livy wrote Roman history. There's 20 of those. Uh, Tacitus wrote histories and annals. There's two of those. Uh, Thelucides. Wrote the history of the Peloponnesian War. There's eight of those. So, the, so those are four works that are all written around the same time that the the Bible like autographs would have been written. There are surviving manuscripts that were like passed down uh, 
There's 10, 20, 2, and 8. All right, so that's 40. 40 manuscripts between those four works. When it comes to the Bible, we have over 3,000 Hebrew manuscripts of the Old Testament, over 5,700 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, over 8,000 manuscripts of the Vulgate, which is the Latin translation of the Bible, 1,500, over 1,500 manuscripts of the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, over a million quotations from church fathers, historians, stuff like that. Uh, and the New Testament was translated on a, in a bunch of languages, so they estimate there's between twenty and 25,000 handwritten copies of the New Testament in various languages. So you have 40, and then you have thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands. And it's not like a contest, you know? But those 40 don't get, they don't get called into question. They don't get scrutinized, you know, all that kind of stuff. There's only 40 of them. We're working with thousands, thousands to think about the big picture of how God wrote his book. That not only are there thousands of these manuscripts, but you're talking 40, more than 40 Authors, most of them never met one another. Um, over a span of 1,500 years is what the Bible covers. It's in three different languages and three different continents, kind of all packed in this one part of the world. And there's this one theme, one thread that runs through the whole thing is God's rescue of his sons and daughters from sin and death through the life and death and burial and resurrection of his son. Like that, that's start to finish. How in the world does anyone other than God put together a treasure like this? The reliability of these ancient documents is really, really, really high. There are lots of people who want to try to use that as a reason to not believe and try to convince you and I to not believe. But I just walk away saying... I. God's gone to great lengths for me to have something. Like you think about the in 1957, uh, some kids in Qumran were throwing rocks into a cave, and they heard something shatter, and they went in, and they found all these manuscripts. We know them as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And that has like opened up the floodgates in, in this particular discipline. And one of my seminary professors, he said, well, isn't it cool that God kept those things preserved in that cave until our technology could like finally catch up enough to be able to validate that they're all real? You know? 20 years before that, they were like, oh, we don't know what to do with these things, you know, maybe. And that, this, and that the science has just continued to go more and more and more. Who knows what else he has preserved out there? that thousands of these documents are there, that we could feel really, really good about holding in our hands the very words of God. The, the issue, a lot of times, you know, people bring up this, this, the term in, infallibility, you know. That was like a big hill to die on in the last couple of decades. The Bible is in, infallible. It's without error. It's, you know, all this stuff. Then you're sitting here and the, the translators are like, no, 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 like we find things all the time. It, but it doesn't mean that the Bible's wrong. 
It's that the, 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 human, the human part of all this, the scribes made mistakes. Scribes, they've like put together a better ending of Mark, you know, like it's, it's a part of this, this mysterious thing about the, uh, about the Bible, you know, cause we're sitting there we're like, how, how can Jesus be a hundred percent God and a hundred percent man at the same time? How can the Trinity be with the Trinity? Well, how can the Bible be God wrote it and man wrote it? It's God does that, right? Like he does these baffling things that shouldn't make sense, but it's not like any other book. It doesn't belong on the same shelf, you know? Like it's not like any, no other book that you have is alive, like this book is alive. It would be a huge mistake for us to worship this book and to exalt it higher than it's supposed to be. But it would be a, a tragedy for us to, to not see the depth and the beauty of what God has given us in this book as well. I remember working at a youth camp years ago, and some some of you guys are a part of it. And Vody Bauckham was the speaker. I don't know if you ever heard Vody speak, but um, at one point he just started railing on these teenagers because their Bibles were. He's like, "Look at your Bibles; they're they're on the floor. You use your Bible to to reserve your seat." And we're like, "What?" You know? And he's, he said, "People have more respect for the American flag than they do the Word of God." Like he was just railing. You know, these like seventh graders are like, "What?" I do with this, but I remember that just thinking like, do, do I do I understand what I have in my hand? Do I understand the treasure that it is? So, what do we do about the end of Mark? What do we do about the fact that verse eight, eight is really open ended? Well, some people think that that was done on purpose. That Mark was. Kind of like leaving it like a choose your own adventure. Like, what would you do if you were the ladies? You know, but to me, that just seems, it doesn't seem, if Mark is sitting there with Peter, you think Peter's like, ooh, let's mess with them and not tell them the end. No, Peter's all about the resurrected Jesus, right? So uh, it, it would make sense in that um, what most scholars believe is that it's the end, it's the last page, it's the end of the scroll, however you want, however it was put together. They probably just got torn off. Or it faded because it was on the end, because it's these things are biodegradable and it was susceptible to the elements. That, that there's some stuff missing. And if we had all those scrolls, if we had all those manuscripts laid out and you went to the oldest ones, there's pictures of them and you can see it. Like it's tattered and torn, and there's just big spacing there that's missing. So it seems likely that there was an ending to Mark. It we just lost it. And uh here's here's one one final thing. One final thing. I I read this and I'm, I've become more and more convinced that this is true and good. Is that we can know what the end of Mark is because we know what the end of Matthew is. So if you've, if you studied the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, there's a ton of overlap between those, those three. John, he's kind of off on his own, own journey over here. But the other three, there's a lot of overlap there. And it's believed that Mark was the, was written first and that Matthew used Mark's gospel as a source for a lot of his stuff. In fact, if you were to, to study the book of Matthew, you'd find that 95% of Mark's gospel is in Matthew, just spread out. And then Matthew supplemented and put in some other stories and those kind of things as he's piecing his gospel together. So 95% of, of Mark was brought into Matthew, and of that 95%, 55% was just copied and pasted. Like It's verbatim the same. 
So we're pretty, pretty, like, pretty, pretty, pretty confident that Mark was Matthew's main source in writing his gospel, which means that if we want to know how Mark ended, we can look at Matthew and pretty much assume the same kinds of things. And then the, 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 the nerdiness gets even, even more nerdy. Because they have taken those old manuscripts and they've looked at how much is missing and they've compared it to other pages and they've figured out about how many lines of Greek would fit in there. If you go to the end of Matthew, they've figured out, based on the structure of Mark and all these kind of things, that they're pretty sure that Matthew 28, 9, and 10, and then 16 through 20, is the exact amount of space that would have been in Mark's gospel and would have been consistent with everything else that he wrote. So chances are, the end of Mark would have sounded something like this. Um, the last sentence, uh, we left the ladies and they were terrified and scared. It would have sounded something like this. This is Matthew 28, 9. Behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. And the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always. To the end of the age. That sounds like a Mark ending, right? Of course, if Mark is sitting there with Peter and he's like, what? How how are we going to end it? He's probably going to say, seeing the resurrected Jesus and receiving the mission that he handed down to us as as our recreated rabbi king who said, now it's yours, go with it. So what do we know about Peter? The church was built on him. So of course, he would grab onto the resurrection and the Great Commission. It makes so much sense, knowing what we have studied in Mark. More on that next week. So can you feel good about the scriptures telling you the truth? Uh, I think so. To think that God went to great lengths to make sure you and I have, have this in our hands. And now we have it on our phones, which is kind of a whole other weird thing, but like to be able to have the very words of God and have thousands of manuscripts and hundreds of men and women who are the, who have given their lives to scholarship to make sure that what we are holding is, is the best possible way. That God has preserved thousands of these things to make sure that we are pointed in the right direction. Uh, it's incredible that God has done this for us. And again, it's not about exalting the Bible. It's about exalting the one who wrote it and gave it to us. So I hope this has been an encouragement to you. Um, We're just going to sing a little bit before we go and respond to the Lord. So let's stand together as the band comes back. Father, I'm thankful, so thankful um, to have been on this this journey for the last couple of years through the Gospel of Mark. Um. To be able to see Jesus' ministry through the eyes and memory of Peter uh, has just been really, really awesome. And God, I'm so thankful 
for the way that you have preserved these manuscripts and these scriptures and how you've gifted men and women to be able to study these and to become experts in this so that we commoners can sit here and read it and and just rest in the truth that is communicated. And yes, for so long we get hung up on this idea of infallibility and all that stuff, but God, your word perfectly communicates what in, what you intended to communicate. Our interpretations and our applications get all get all off sometimes and but God, there is there is no mistake in what you're trying to convey to us that you are good and that you are love and that you are holy and that we are your children that you love deeply enough to come and rescue us yourself. In communicating that to us, the scriptures are infallible. They communicate it perfectly. And so God, may we receive that and just thank you for caring for us in all the ways that you do.